Welcome to Terrible, a Canadian true crime podcast. I'm Marie. And I'm Renee. We are two friends that discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare ourselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. If you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can find us on Etsy at Terrible True Crime. And we do also have a Patreon if you guys want to check that out and you can have some extra bonus episodes. Okay, all right, so a couple of crime updates. Uh, so I have a couple of short ones for you guys. So first of all, uh, Toronto police say that a man has been charged in the death of his parents. So the parents were found in an apartment building in the city. Police responded to a call for a stabbing in northwest of Toronto shortly before 2 a.m. And that's where they were found dead in their suite. Investigators have identified the victims of 68-year-old Colin Henry and 67-year-old Veronica Henry of Toronto. Toronto police say that the 28-year-old son of the two victims has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and they're asking for anyone with any information to reach out. That's so, yikes. It's like a lot of kids killing their parents. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but it's, yeah, just 28 years old, and just, I guess we'll get more information as it comes out, but... yeah. It's really awful. My other update is that police say early investigations have identified human remains found in Long Wharf, New Brunswick as female. St. John police said that the autopsy shows the remains are believed to belong to a female between 17 and 30 years old, between 5 feet and 4 inches, and 5 feet and 7 inches tall. Police say no other identifications can be made at this time, including cause or manner of death until further investigation. Investigators continued by saying that they found their remains floating in the water. They say forensic services are also working to find the woman's identity through the National DNA Database for Missing Persons. Again, if anyone has any information, reach out to the local police. So two short ones, but two that kind of need some extra attention and hopefully more information comes out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, I did want to mention those two quickly, but I know Marie has kind of a biggie for us. Families of murder victims went before a committee of MPs to condemn a controversial Supreme Court of Canada's decision on sentencing law. So in May, all nine justices on Canada's top court overturned a 2011 criminal code provision that allowed judges to impose parole ineligibility periods of 25 years to be served consecutively for each murder rather than concurrently. Charlene Bosma's husband, Tim, was killed in 2013. She told MPs on the Justice Committee that the provision for consecutive parole periods was one of the few things that we as victims had to hold on to. She also mentions, it says to us that you can kill as many people as you want here in Canada because sentencing will not change. Tim Bosma's killers were hit with multiple 25-year parole ineligibility periods after being found guilty of multiple murders. Charlene said the sentencing came as a relief because she believed it would mean that her daughter who was two at the time of her father's death, would never have to face his killers. So that's a lot of information. Uh, and it's, I guess it's going to really start to, you know, affect some of the cases that are happening now that are coming up, people getting sentenced. Um, I hope that we get a bit more details. Like if, if there's a certain mm-hmm. criteria that this especially has to fall under, if this is kind of a blanket, you know, it's not happening anymore for anyone. So it's very interesting. I mean, we always talk about in some of these horrible cases where we know the person's done it and then it's like 10 years until probation 
and in yeah yeah it, we know that there's a even medium but sometimes the Canadian justice system can be kind of lenient so I yeah. hope this doesn't mean that it's gonna sort of teeter towards the even more lenient side and, but I guess we'll have to yeah. see how it plays out and I hate the thought that some people may actually take that literally you know people think that you can kill as many people as you want here i feel like there's a piece of this puzzle missing because i mm, don't feel like it makes sense this makes much sense um but we're gonna kind of keep up on this and see what sort of happens in the future all right so this week we're kind of continuing our series about the london murders that we discussed last week so the first case that we're covering is the case of jackie english Jackie is described as bubbly and petite. She had two siblings, Anne and Fred, and was raised by mostly a single mom. I think her father was sort of in and out of her life. In 1969, Jackie is 15 and she's working as a waitress. At this point, she's getting more freedom. She's making her own money. She's, you know, starting to date a boy named David. And because she started working, she's getting to know more people. She's partying with coworkers. She's making friends. There's nothing better than getting your first job and realizing what it it's like to feel the money coming in and you're like, oh, yes. what do I do with it? Yeah. And also sort of meeting people outside of your immediate mm -hmm. circle that you're kind of used to. Like, I feel like that's kind of what, you know, what she's doing. And yeah, at this point, she just seems like kind of an average, responsible 15-year-old girl. On October 4th of 1969, Jackie goes to work. She's working at a restaurant. As I said, she's a waitress and she leaves around 10 p.m. She begins her walk onto an overpass and I believe that she's walking toward the bus stop. More than one witness saw Jackie walking that night. They must have been driving by her and had just seen her. And one of them even saw her get into a car. The witnesses reported that Jackie looked like she knew the people in the car. And the car was later described as a dark sedan. That was the last time that Jackie would be seen alive. During this time, Jackie's mom is in hospital recovering from surgery. So a family friend is watching the English kids. When Jackie doesn't return home that night, the next morning, the family friend goes out looking for her. She first checks David's house, Jackie's boyfriend, but no luck. David, at this point, is also becoming worried, so they both go and they check the restaurant where she works. Again, no sign of Jackie. Everyone sort of waited for Jackie to show up to work that night. And when she didn't, they reported her missing and a search began. It must have been really hard for her mom to hear that news too as she's recovering from surgery. I'm sure it just makes it, you know, 10 times worse to, to get well. So it's not really specific what kind of surgery. I think it's more like a routine surgery is mm -hmm. kind of what I could get from it. Um, but yeah, I think like a couple days later, she kind of checks herself out and, you know, gets straight into looking for her daughter. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, feeling so powerless already when you have a missing child. But at this point, she's recovering. She wasn't even there. She you know, left her kids in the care of a, you know, a family friend who did her job, but you know, something horrible ended up happening. Four days later, Jackie's body is discovered by two duck hunters in Big Otter Creek near Tilsonburg. She was nude and her clothes were torn. The family friend had to go to the morgue and identify her body. Oh, that's so hard. There's kind of mixed reporting on this, but it was never confirmed if Jackie was sexually assaulted or not. But semen was found inside of her, but later investigators did confirm that she had had consensual sex with her boyfriend earlier that day. It was ultimately determined that she died from a single blow to the head. As investigators did their thing, they discovered some of Jackie's belongings were found about 10 miles from where her body was dumped, and then 10 miles further than that, her shoes were found. 
When the news of Jackie's murder spread, witnesses came forward. One of these witnesses was a lady named Betty and her husband. They had been served by Jackie at the restaurant, and they remember her talking to a man and seeming uneasy about the interaction. They were able to help investigators make up a composite drawing. That's yeah. really creepy. Oh. Yeah, super creepy. We'll put it up on our social media. Um, very like dark oh. eyes, like kind of neutral features. It's again one of those things where I don't know who looks like this, but Slender Man. Yeah, yeah. It's very yeah, he's got a very like <laughs> slim face. But you know, this this kind of was something, right? It could have gone somewhere. Yeah. So investigators had a lot of theories. The first one was love interest, the, the kind of the first person we always look at. Mm -hmm. So they looked at her boyfriend, David, but he had an alibi. A lot of this is rumor and speculation that we're going to go over, but apparently David had a brother as well, and people kind of suspected that he might have also had a thing for Jackie, so he was kind of looked at for a little bit. Investigators also later found out that Jackie had kissed someone at work named Lloyd, and she had written about it in her diary, and that David didn't know about this. All these three guys were sort of looked into, and I don't think anything concrete ever came from it. Do you think diaries are still a thing? I don't know. I feel you like know? diary people are diary. Like I was, I was always the person who's like, "Dear diary," and then I wrote like three things, and I didn't touch it for like three years. Yeah, like I wanted to have a diary, but I'm. But I think mm. the people that have them are Continue really committed. Yeah. yeah. The second theory or sort of avenue of investigation is that. Jackie had a friend and a corker named Marilyn, and she was questioned after Jackie, you know, disappeared and then was found murdered, and her story constantly changed. It became clear that she was either trying to insert herself into the investigation for personal reasons, or she knew something and was trying to cover for someone. After Jackie's murder, Marilyn had an attempt at suicide. She was found with a picture of Jackie, and on the back of the picture was written, Her killer remained a secret to be buried with me. So this was obviously a huge red flag for investigators to you know have been aware of this picture with this inscription on the back like i said this was just an attempt so marilyn did survive and when she was questioned she didn't really give them much information it seems like it was all really really sketchy with her it's like she knew what had happened or at least she said she knew what mm -hmm. had happened but said that she would never kind of divulge any information which is strange like why very strange know. it's also sort of said that she kind of you know, put herself or presented herself as one of Jackie's best friends when that was not really the case either. They were, they were friends, but they were coworkers, you know, so they, mm -hmm. so it, to me, it seems a lot like she's trying to put herself in the middle of this case, but it, it's really hard to tell. One of the theories is that she could have been covering up for a relative, her brother who, um, you know, had kind of a, a shady past, or I'm not sure if this was done before Jackie was murdered or after, but he had stabbed uh, or stabbed or slashed a five-year-old boy. Oh. And it's reported he also did some kind of armed robbery. Like, he just wasn't, you know, <laughs> like, mm. yeah. wasn't a great stand-up guy. So in the episode of the TV show, To Catch a Killer, it's episode 104, Cold Case Jackie English, Mike Arnfield, who we mentioned last episode, he's a criminologist and police officer. And he actually went to interview Marilyn. She's now, you know, a lot older, and I think he was hoping to finally get some information out of her. Like, if she was keeping a secret or covering mm -hmm. for someone, then maybe she'd finally kind of, like, let it let yeah. it go. So Marilyn, again, kind of talked about how she, you know, she sort of knew what had happened to Jackie. She mentioned men, like, uh, multiple people, and he asked her, you know, who are these men? 
that you're talking about and she says that she knows who they are but she can't say she talks about her attempt at suicide and confirms again that she knew who killed jackie and she basically said that she's a great secret keeper and that she would kind of you know it seems like she takes pride in that but yeah. it's just you're not like for what <laughs> why are you keeping a secret that's like a disgusting secret and it's like you're not even keeping a secret you're just covering for a murder yeah you know yeah. at this point so and i you know at first i was thinking well maybe she's afraid of retaliation or whatever but all these years later to not give closure to a family like and it still just, says that she is like good at keeping secrets and then. she knows yeah, yeah. It's, it was, it's just, it was gross i didn't like it at all and he keeps his cool during the entire like I guess questioning or conversation and oh my god I would have been like are you kidding <laughs> but yeah she keeps referring to the murderers as they meaning there would have been multiple people and it's never really confirmed that what Marilyn knows or thinks that she knows is true or is actually connected to Jackie's case I can't imagine how frustrating that is for the families though to like mm. You know, have someone who's still alive claim that they, they know, know something. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Jackie's sister Anne has been pretty vocal and, you know, has been a huge advocate for her sister and her sister's case. And to, and she's spoken to Marilyn about it. And Marilyn still refuses to give any information. So it's pretty mind blowing. The third thought or theory is that it could have been a serial killer. As we discussed this last episode, there's multiple murders around this time in London. So Betty, our witness, and her husband, after they helped the police began receiving threatening phone calls this is so scary the phone calls are basically telling her that she should not have gone to the police and threatening her and you know so on so on they're very creepy that would scare me to death oh my god me too they eventually get a sympathy card in the mail that says we will be watching you oh which is again terrifying that. yeah and a month later betty's in her car and she's attacked by a man <gasps> The man slashes her on the face, hands, shoulders, and thighs. Thankfully, Betty had her dog with her, and the dog actually attacked the man who was trying to get her into another vehicle that is Aww. described as a dark-colored Ford Falcon. What kind of dog do we know? I don't know. I think the name her name was Cindy. Oh, Cindy. Yeah, so Cindy had never been like a guard dog or anything like that, but had seen her owner in trouble mm -hmm. and had like bit the man attacking Betty. Oh, I love that. Yes, it's pretty incredible. Betty was able to give a description. She said he was about 29 to 30 years old, 175 pounds, dark hair, and had maybe a tooth missing or a dark tooth. He was tall and slim and he was wearing gloves. So this is kind of where we're at. So both these cases we're covering today are unsolved. Um, so this is kind of the avenues that you know, investigators went down as far as I was able to find. I did listen to, I'm almost done the book, The Forest City Killer, A Serial Murder and Cold Case Sleuth by Vanessa Brown. So in this book, she talks a lot about the Jackie English case and kind of about the avenues of investigation we just went through. It seems like nothing is really pointing anywhere specifically other than, you know, Marilyn, but you take that with what, what you want to take mm -hmm. it with because we're, it's kind of unclear. She's just, I don't know why someone would do this but she had you know some mental health issues which it seems like she might have and uh, she still is sort of adamant to this day that she knows what happened but that she's not going to say anything so strange so and jackie's sister said that she's reached the point where she could live with knowing her sister's death will never be solved she said the following my primary concern is making sure jackie is remembered not forgotten secondary to that i would hope for answers but that hope has really 
really dwindled over the years. A man was actually charged and went to trial in 1973 for the attack on Betty. And this kind of brought hope, I think, to the English family, thinking mm -hmm. that this could be also be the man who had killed Jackie. But he was acquitted of all charges. And that's kind of the latest update that I was able to find. Um, you know, this case has been covered by TV shows. There are a couple of books on this case and others in the area. So we hope that one day Jackie's case will be solved for her family. Another case discussed in the book I mentioned earlier is the case of Jacqueline Dunleavy. And that is the next case we're going to cover. In 1968, Jacqueline is a 16-year-old grade 10 student at Westminster Secondary School in London, Ontario. She has strawberry blonde hair and is described as responsible and as a sweetheart. On January 9th, Jacqueline is finishing up her shift at the Stanley Variety Store located on Stanley Street at Warren Cliff Road. She locks up around 6.30 and heads to the bus stop. This is Ontario in January, so I'm assuming that it's a pretty cold night. And when 7pm comes around, Jacqueline's family is getting worried. She hasn't arrived home yet. Her mom calls the store, she calls London Transit, and tries to reach her by calling her friends, but no luck. Her father, who is actually a police officer, goes out looking for her and is trying to retrace her steps from the store to home. Oh, as a police officer, he must be Panic. on high yeah. alert. And, who, and who's aware of these kind types you know, of that, well, that isn't yeah. the safest place mm -hmm. in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely scary. You probably assume the worst, hope for the best, but unfortunately, around 8 p.m., three teenage boys who had been tobogganing, but most likely, you know, just hanging out and up to no good, find Jacqueline's body in a parking lot. Oh the my boy, god, that's quick. Very quick. So this is like about an hour and a half after she locks up. Oh my god. From her job. She didn't even have a chance. Although, like, if we go back to the case we just discussed, Jackie's body was found four days later. I think it's assumed that she was murdered the night that she mm. went yeah. missing. So I, it's just, I think, where this murderer left her body was a very public space. So if, yeah. if she hadn't been found that night, she would have been found the next morning. Right. It was like actually a parking lot. It was a school. So oh, gosh. the boys are obviously panicked and they're trying to get some help and they thankfully find an on-duty police officer. The officer calls for backup and investigators show up and begin to do their thing. Jacqueline's face and head had been severely beaten and her body had been scratched repeatedly. Parts of her body were left exposed and the body was eventually taken for an autopsy to be done. We'd later find out that there was no indication of sexual penetration, but that she had been strangled with her scarf. Oh my gosh. There was semen and vomit found near her body, so it's unclear like whose the vomit was. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, ugh, I I know that it's like not like sexual penetration, but like se this is like sexual assault. It's gross, you know. 100%, yeah. And the other thing that happened in this case was that a pack of to-go tissues with a plastic bag were stuffed in her mouth. Jacqueline, however, fought back pretty hard and, you know, she injured her attacker and he left blood at the scene that was determined to be type O. Her boots and underwear and stockings and coat were tossed to the side. They eventually found Jacqueline's belongings and in it there was an ID and this sort of helped investigators confirm that she was Jacqueline Dunleavy, daughter of their colleague, Constable John Dunleavy. That must be so hard for those officers on duty to be like, notify yeah, like her. It's happened. Yeah. 
it's like I think especially in those types of jobs it, it, they become like a big family mm-hmm. and even family members and children it just become sort of a big family because it's mm-hmm. such a specific line of work that I think yeah. families need a lot of support in and mm-hmm. weird hours and things like that so I'm sure it really felt like this was one of their own yeah and if anything you would think that families are worried for the member that is like within the police force or, or whatever it may be you know in that line of of duty but to find you know his daughter yeah, to be the one yeah. who wasn't safe that that must be heartbreaking we're just speculating now but when you think you're the, you're the law and you're the people that are supposed to be out mm-hmm. there protecting others and when it happens like within such a close circle i'm sure it hits sort of different. Witnesses had seen Jacqueline walking that night, and one of them even says that they saw her enter a white four-door sedan, most likely a Chrysler. It was theorized that the injuries that occurred on Jacqueline's left side may have happened while she was sitting in the passenger seat of a vehicle. Tire impressions were found in the snow and pictures were taken. They were even able to make plaster casts of the impressions. They later determined that the marks left by the car had four completely different tire in terms of make and model and tread depth. They also remarked that the car had the worst alignment problem they had ever seen in a vehicle still operating on the road in wintertime. Oh my god. This was not a well-kept vehicle at all. So I guess let's get into some of the theories about Jacqueline's case. So the first one is a stranger abduction and murder. I guess this could fall in the serial killer kind of realm. Like I said, it's reported she entered a stranger's car. It's hard to know if this was a stranger or someone that she knew. It could have been a client at the store that she was working at. Um, Mike Arnfield, the criminologist and police officer I mentioned earlier, also wrote a book about some of these murders. And he remarked that the Stanley Variety store was a magnet for some of the shadiest characters inhabiting London. The next is a quote directly from the Canadian Crimopedia article. Many of the customers were considered persons of interest, including a regular porn customer with a fixation on Jacqueline, who was a violent drunk and already married to a 16-year-old, a morgue worker who had recently been accused of trying to force a teenaged girl into his vehicle at the very same bus stop that Jacqueline had been abducted from. A youth from the neighborhood that had spent years in reform school for hanging a seven-year-old girl and pleasuring himself while he watched the life drain from her body. These are three different customers that investigators knew frequented the variety store that they, you know, had in mind and investigated after Jacqueline's death. So the fact that these three men were actively in the store is sort of concerning, obviously. Yeah, and the fact that you can let a 16-year-old work there while knowing these are the type of people like customers that go there i don't know i like i feel like there should have been more people around maybe like i don't know yeah yeah the fact that she was alone kind of Mm -hmm. walking up at night and that this place was i'm not sure how well known it was before jacqueline's murder but i think a lot of information came out after After, yeah about what kind of place this was and how it was kind of you know it sold very shady stuff Mm -hmm. now that we've mentioned how sketchy this variety store is the store owner's name was joe and it's reported that he liked to employ young girls so you know it seems like this was a specific choice of his and after jacqueline's murder he left town he got out of dodge he's like goodbye and it's unsure like i'm unsure if this is because sort of all of the stuff that had been going on at the store it was starting to come out Mm -hmm. like we just mentioned or if he could possibly have had something to do with it 
Mm. It would never be confirmed Sketchy. either or. And then, of course, you know, our good old serial killer theory at the time. Criminologist Mike Arnfield, again, has suggested that the forensic evidence in this case indicates that Jacqueline was murdered by someone who was either already a serial killer or well on their way to become one. He said that Jacqueline's body was left out in the open in a relatively busy area, so no doubt that the killer wanted somebody to admire his work. Arnfield argues that the specific staging of Jacqueline's body suggests that her murder was about power and control and that her killer may have taken photographs of Jacqueline's remains before fleeing the scene. Ew. So there's obviously a lack of a DNA match. So this means the perpetrator has not been arrested since or, you know, it's kind of unclear, but I think that Mike Arnfield is sort of hoping at some point that we'll be able to use familial DNA to sort of solve this case. You know, we've talked about that before and yeah. see if um, see if that can kind of get us anywhere. But I think that it's kind of rare that it's approved and it's on a case-to-case -case basis. So we'll see if that ever, you know, comes to fruition, but that'd be great. So we will continue this series, um, not next episode. We'll give you guys a little break, but we'll, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll continue covering some of these cases as time goes on. And we really hope that some of them are eventually solved. If it wasn't a serial killer, I just hate the thought that that many people could kill. Yes. Could yeah, murder. Like and yeah. Yeah. Don't like definitely. that. So this week we'll be donating to Victim Services of Middlesex, London. They are an organization providing practical assistance and emotional support to help victims of crime and or tragic circumstances and contributes to a safe and healthy community through collaboration and cooperation with police and emergency service personnel. If you'd like to contribute to Victim Services of Middlesex London, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram and TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. As always, the links we use for our research will be linked in our description, so please feel free to check them out. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Bye.